You're listening to a podcast by Mission Field USA, a church planting initiative of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For more information and resources, visit lcms.org slash church planting. Hello, and welcome to the LCMS Mission Field USA Church Planting Podcast. I'm Reverend Dr. Steve Shave, Director of LCMS Church Planting. Today we have an important topic when it comes to starting any new venture. There typically will be some sort of conflict or some need for resolutions of those conflicts. So we're excited to have with us today uh, Ted Kober. Welcome, Ted. Thank you. Ted serves as the Senior Ambassador for Ambassadors of Reconciliation, so he's definitely an expert in this field, so we're excited to have uh, his knowledge. He's gone about the country teaching uh, in congregations, doing church worker conferences, schools, universities, seminaries, you name it, around the world. Is that right, Ted? Uh, That's right. God (laughs) has given me some unbelievable opportunities to, uh, to speak with people, work with people around the globe. Excellent, excellent. And like I said, this is is uh, pretty standard uh, for any new venture that uh, people are passionate, they're excited, they're nervous. You know, there's a whole flood of emotions with this type of new venture when you church plan. Um, but even with the best intentions, we know that that passion then can lead to conflict. So we're excited to have Ted talk to us today about the biblical effective strategies to help resolve those conflicts and to bring healing. That's what's probably most important is that we have healing through this reconciliation process. And Ted, I think you were going to start us off today with an opening story. Yeah, so uh, I was working with a church that was struggling with conflict, and this woman came up to me and said, I can't believe we have conflict in our church. And I said, you know, it's the funniest thing. I hear they actually allow sick people in hospitals. And she looked at me, and I said, you know, the church is like a hospital. And I said, we come to the church because we are sick with sin. But I said, uh, what happens is when, when people are in a hospital, they're not feeling well, they're sick, they, they bring their pain, they bring their hurts, and sometimes they get kind of nasty towards one another because they get grumpy and, you know, they're uncomfortable. And, and, and then sometimes they take it out on the very people that are there to help them get better. And you know, those people that are there to help them get better, they get tired of that after a while too. And sometimes they get grumpy towards each other as, as staff, but then sometimes they treat the patients uh, uh, badly as well. And the church is like a hospital. But you know what the good news is? At least the people are in the place where the cure can be found. And the cure is found in the forgiveness of sins we receive through Christ. So it's not a surprise that there's conflict in the church because there's sinners there. And you know, when we talk about new churches, uh, church plants, all we have to do is look to the scriptures to see that the church plants there were experiencing conflict in places like Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae. Uh, Those were all churches that were experiencing conflict. So it's not unusual. Yeah, it can be expected, especially if you want to start a new hospital. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. And everything that goes with it. So, Ted, um, how would you then define what conflict is? What causes that conflict? Conflict can be defined as a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. And because we live in a world that is affected by sin— 
conflict is inevitable and therefore should be expected. And all you have to do is read scripture to see where it is. Our, our conflict with God began in Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve first sinned. But it wasn't long after when the first murder occurred and Cain murdered his brother because he was jealous of his relationship to God. Well, fast forward to King David and here you have a man who was very blessed by God, a worship leader, and, and uh, he had an adulterous affair. And when uh, the woman Bathsheba found out she was pregnant from that, instead of confessing his sin, David took uh, extreme steps to cover it up, even having her husband killed in battle. And then it, it fast forward again to the disciples when they were working with Jesus, and they argued among themselves who was the greatest while Jesus was right there in their midst. And then as you read Paul's letters to the early Christian churches, as I, as I indicated, they had all kinds of conflict they were dealing with. So we shouldn't be surprised when conflict comes. We, we should anticipate it. Now, several things can cause conflict. Some are caused by simple misunderstandings. Others might be caused by differences in, in opinions or values the way things should happen. Some are caused by competition over limited resources. And in new churches, for example, that's easy to happen. If you're using a, a, a space that's used by a, another organization and you want to hold a special event, but they don't want you to use it because they've got something else going on, that's competition over limited resources. Budget can be another time where there's limited resources. But the scripture defines uh, another cause of conflict that we often overlook from James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what is James saying? He's saying that the causes of our fights and quarrels is ultimately in our sin. It's in that nature that I want to be God. I want to be in control. That was really the, the first temptation. Uh, do you not want to be like God? And uh, that's part of our role today. And even if conflict is caused by things other than sin initially, it doesn't take long before we respond to one another in sinful ways. And it begins in our heart, in our thoughts. Pretty soon our mouth opens, and there we are. Well, you know, uh, I'm just thinking in my own experience, I had a wonderful experience. I had the best group of uh, folks for my core group I could ask for. But I remember having that conversation where I had to say, you know, look, I know we're worried about budgets and those are the realities of the world. But to be honest, I don't think anything with the budget will ever break up this group of people. Um, the one thing I think Satan could use to break up this wonderful group of people is division. And, uh, you know, you're exactly right. When you read Paul's letters he, as a church planner, you can see his heart broken over the conflicts and divisions that were happening. Uh, and, and he knew where that was. He knew the source of uh, that division. And uh, it is heartbreaking. But let's, let's talk a little bit more in depth then about conflict. And what, Ted, is the difference then between conflict resolution and reconciliation? Steve, that is a wonderful question because we often don't stop and think about what that distinction is. And then when we don't think about that distinction, the way we respond to it is guided by how we uh, misunderstand that. 
Conflict resolution is dealing with the material or substantive issues in a dispute. And there's almost always some kind of substantive or material issue. So you mentioned one, for example, budget. That would be a very material thing, easy to see. Uh, and the way you resolve conflict is you negotiate for a solution. But reconciliation has to do with relationships. It's a repairing the harm of the brokenness that comes in the relationship. And what happens is if we have a material issue that we have a difference in opinion about, pretty soon we begin to sin against one another. And we, we, we might uh, begin to raise our voices. We might begin to think badly of the other person. Pretty soon something comes out of our mouth that is very defamatory. And um, even if we negotiate a settlement to the material issue, if we don't repair the relationship, then trust erodes, and eventually we have problems there. And the way you deal with reconciliation is through confession and forgiveness. And so even if you resolve the problem, but you don't restore the relationship, you're headed down a path where things are gonna to continue to break down, and uh, eventually it ends up in, in destruction of some kind. Notice that when we were separated from God because of our sin, he didn't choose conflict resolution. If he did, we'd all be in hell <laughs> because that's the consequence of being separated from God. Isaiah says, uh, you are separated from your God. Your sin separates you so that he will not hear or listen to you. And that leaves us in desperate straits. But while we were still sinners, God chose to reconcile us to him. In other words, he restored the relationship through forgiveness forgiveness that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so reconciliation is so important to our God that he was willing to sacrifice the blood of his son to restore that relationship. We don't have a God of conflict resolution. We have a God of reconciliation. And he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. So what does that mean? It means that we are to tell the story, to share this good news that even though we were sinners, Christ died for us to restore us in relationship to our Heavenly Father. And that is the ministry of reconciliation. Paul defines that in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. Jesus takes on our sin, pays the full punishment, and in return, we get holiness. We get restored in relationship to God. But then Paul goes on to say, and he entrusts to us the ministry of reconciliation. He calls us ambassadors of reconciliation. Well, what does that mean? That means we are to be messengers, first of all, to one another in the body of Christ, to live out that forgiveness, to forgive as we have been forgiven but then also to do that with the world so that they too can know about this great news of reconciliation. So uh, it's generally speaking in conflict, you need both. Mm. You need conflict resolution and reconciliation. But I want to point out that our God is more interested in our relationships than he is in our worldly disputes. Amen. That's a good point. And when you think about leadership in church plants, uh, there's certain characteristics of uh, church planters and leaders in planting churches and their 
very impassioned people. They're inspiring people. But as you said, uh, you really have to check your ego at the door. You have to uh, consider that your calling is to these people and uh, the shepherd and the sheep. We we understand that uh, Jesus, like you said, was uh, crucified at our own hands. He bore those sins in his own flesh. And uh, as a leader, um, you have to be willing to forgive uh, when you're sinned against, no doubt. Let me give you an example of the difference in conflict resolution and reconciliation that um, many people will be able to relate to. Let's say that you have a young couple that fall in love and they do nice things for each other and their love grows and, and so one day they finally decide to get married. And they have a few little disagreements, but they have such great love for one another that they simply overlook them and they don't, you know, they, they get married. But then they go on and they have their first really big fight in marriage. And now in this disagreement, they say things to hurt one another in ways they've never done before. And because they have this intimate relationship, they know how to push each other's buttons <laughs> and they know what things will bring the greatest hurt. But they come to a resolution. They make a decision on the disagreement but they don't reconcile. That is, they don't confess and forgive the sins against one another. They just come up with an answer to the problem. Well, they go on again in their marriage and they have enough love that they've gone past that, but then they have their next really big fight. And there's a remembrance of the offenses from the last time. And this time, the words are a little bit more biting. And one, sometimes both, feel that the other got the better part of the deal, so they fight even harder to get their resolution. Once again, they make a decision. They come up with a resolution, but guess what? They don't confess. They don't forgive. So they continue on in their marriage doing conflict resolution but not reconciliation, and slowly that that wonderful relationship erodes until one day they have a minor disagreement and all of a sudden they split up and they separate. When family and friends ask, why, why did you separate? And they explain this most recent fight. They said, you separated over that little thing? <laughs> no, it wasn't that little thing at all. It was the fact that they never learned to reconcile. Mm. They only learned to resolve conflict. I shared this example one day when I was teaching over a couple of days at a, at a particular institution. And at the end of the second day, this woman came up to me and she said, you said something yesterday that I believe saved my marriage. Hmm. She said, my husband and I have been married for a number of years and we had fallen out of love with one another. And she said, I had already packed my bags and that night I was gonna leave my husband. And when you describe this difference, I realized he's talking about me. Hmm. We have never reconciled, we've only done conflict resolution. And so I had a discussion with my husband last night and said, we need to change something about our relationship. And she said, after we talked, I've decided I'm going to stay in my marriage and learn how to reconcile. Hmm. That's the difference. And in churches, we can do the same thing. We can come to resolutions when we have our disagreements. And in America especially, it's so easy to just leave one church and go to another hmm. and not reconcile. You see, we resolve the problem, but we never restore the relationship. Hmm. And that's not what... God calls us to do. He calls us to be reconciled, not just resolved.
Amen. So watch the ego, watch the emotion. Don't let it build up to that point. Don't avoid the conflict, but instead, as a leader in the church, be about reconciliation and forgiveness. Very good. So I know church planners want to avoid those issues <laughs> that can bring harm to a new church, but what is, uh, in your uh, opinion, the most common issue in church conflict? So I get asked this a lot by church leaders, and my answer is always the same. The issues vary. The issues vary actually considerably. Now there's some themes and patterns to them, but it could be uh, a conflict between the pastor and the lay leaders or between the pastor and the people. In new church plants, sometimes they, they use an early childhood center. And I've seen sometimes conflict between the director of the early childhood center and the pastor. Uh, sometimes there's uh, conflict over the budget, we mentioned that. <laughs> sometimes there's conflict over starting a new church. So you have one church that's going to uh, host a church plant, and I've seen churches get in conflict over that mm. because it means you're going to send people and other resources out to this new place, and how can we afford to do that? And it's funny, it's the dynamic, we call it mother and daughter churches, and mothers and daughters have conflicts. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, then when you talk about a building program, now there's more opportunities. Mm. Or if you're in an existing building and you want to make changes, that's opportunity for conflict. So the, the issues can vary significantly. But there is something that we found that is common among highly conflicted churches. And before I tell you what that is, I want to share with you how I discovered that over time. I've been doing this work now for three decades. And I remember the first highly conflicted church that uh, uh, I and a, a couple of team members went to serve. And we, we always meet with different leadership groups as well as individual leaders. And uh, we were meeting with the elders of this church. It was a large church uh, uh, averaging over 700 people in worship every weekend. And they had 13 elders, and we met with the elders, and we wanted to begin with Scripture. Well, none of the elders had brought a Bible with them, so we handed out Bibles from the church, and we asked them to look up the Gospel of John. Four of those elders could not find the Gospel of John. Hmm. Three of them were paging through the Old Testament, and one had landed on 1 John. And we thought, wow, <laughs> this is an incredibly unusual place. Well, I was at another church that had been one of the most uh, uh, acclaimed churches in its district. They had a large, thriving school. They were considered a very uh, um, successful church in terms of its evangelism and growth and uh, had this uh, wonderful history. And I, I met with the Board of Elders there. There was 11 men. Same thing. I handed out Bibles from the church pews. Not one elder knew where the Book of Romans was. Finally, one found it in the contents, and because they were all in the Bible, they could turn to the, to the page number of the contents, and then they took them a while to find the chapter and verse we wanted to look at. Then there was another church where uh, we were going to work with them, and uh, uh, on the day we started our work, they had a congregational meeting. And there had been a lot of strife in this congregation. And so usually they only had 35 people for a congregational meeting. They had over 100 people. They were meeting in the sanctuary. Uh, you could feel the tension in the room. And as the chairperson was trying to lead the meeting, people were standing up, shouting him down. Others were shouting at them to sit down and shut up. And some people were just crying. Others were looking at their feet. They were so ashamed of their church. After the meeting, uh, 
we met with the church council. Uh, there were a dozen people there, and I asked them, in this meeting we just witnessed, which of the Ten Commandments were broken? Only one person, a 75-year-old elder, knew anything about the Ten Commandments. Uh-huh. I'm not saying they couldn't identify them by number. I'm not saying that they, they couldn't quote uh, the explanation from Luther's small catechism. They couldn't even briefly describe them. Then I was in uh, uh, another church, and we meet with all the households of the congregation. And uh, uh, we, we, each of our team members had uh, a room at the church, and uh, a couple would come in, and then uh, they would get up to leave. And we had a Bible on the table, and I opened it to the Gospel of John because I remembered that a lot of people were not going to be able to find the Gospel of John. <laughs> this couple sat down in front of me. They told me they had been regularly worshiping at this church for more than 20 years. But you see, when somebody would get up and leave and another couple would come and sit down, a few pages would turn in the Bible. And so I asked them to look at a particular chapter and verse. They didn't know the Bible was divided by chapter and verse. Oh, wow. Every one of these examples I'm giving you are from our synod. Our synod, which prides itself as being people of the word. But here's what we found is common in highly conflicted churches. People, too many people, are biblically illiterate. Mm. Even though the word is used in worship, if that's their only connection to the Bible, they are largely unfamiliar with it. We find that when we do teaching and we reference um, people from the Bible, for example, uh, Cain and Abel, like I mentioned earlier, or David and Bathsheba, um, people don't know who they are, Hmm. and we have to to retell the story. I find that what people know about Moses, they've learned mostly from the movie The Ten Commandments. And there's some things that are not biblically accurate in that sure. movie. And so you, you, you have to help people understand what the story is in order to help them apply it. And so every place we've been, we found people that are spiritually mature that are in the Word. But if there's not enough of them there familiar with God's Word or how to apply it to their own lives, when we go, we find that that's, that's the real underlying issue. Mm-hmm. And so I did, uh, uh, over the years, I've, I've developed a rule of thumb on spiritual health in a congregation. And you know, a rule of thumb is not a scientific measurement. It's just a quick litmus test to give you an idea where to begin to look for issues. And this is the, the, the test. When an elder or a chairman of the congregation or a pastor call me uh, because they're, they're having difficulties in their church, I uh, um, ask them some questions about what their average worship attendance is, what's been the trend in worship attendance, what's happening with offerings. Then I say this, how many different adults attend one of the church's regular Bible studies? Hmm. And then I take that number and divide it by the average worship attendance. Now, because there's children in worship, and I'm not including children in my calculation, it'll never be 100%. But here's my rule of thumb. If that percentage is less than 20%, I'm going to find a church that is largely spiritually immature. Mm. And the underlying issue of their conflict is not the difference in the budget. It's not the difference in the construction program or whether we should do this church plan. It's in how they respond to it in more worldly ways. Mm. And so 
um, a couple of years ago, Concordia Publishing House approached me and asked if I would write a book on healthy churches. And I, I considered it for a while, but I, I, I was kind of surprised because there's so many books out there on the topic. But when I went back at my own library and looked at them, uh, I said, well, I would approach this from a very different way. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done in the book. And in part of that, uh, I wanted to do a study um, on, on healthy churches to test my, my theories of uh, the problem being rooted in biblical illiteracy. So I called um, district presidents that I knew, and I asked them to give me the names of three or four churches in their district that they considered healthy. And they said, well, how do you define a healthy church? I said, I'm not going to tell you because that could bias what I'm looking for. And so I got their names, and then if there were uh, pastors or churches I was familiar with, I eliminated them from my list, and I did a qualitative study on 11 churches eventually. And uh, I chose a wide variety. They varied in worship size from 95 per weekend to over 1,300 in a weekend. They were urban, suburban, and uh, rural. Um, they were from all different kinds of backgrounds. And when I talked to the senior pastors of these different churches that their ecclesiastical supervisors deemed healthy, all of them had experienced conflict. You see, people think that just because you're a healthy church, you're not going to have conflict. That's <laughs> not true. And one of the questions I asked them was, can you describe a significant conflict from your church? And uh, what I really want to know is how did people respond to it? Well, most of the pastors said, well, you're not going to name our church in your book, are you? <laughs> and I said, no. Why did they say that? The issues they had were significant. Mm. Uh, one church was fighting over a church plant. Another one had a major construction program. Another one uh, had a moral failing in one of its uh, primary staff positions, and so on. But what I was interested in is um, how did people respond to it? And they were very different than the unhealthy churches. How they responded differently is in the meeting after the meeting. So if you had a congregational meeting, whether it was board meeting or a congregational-wide meeting, and, and uh, people got passionate and they were unhappy, in the unhealthy churches I've worked, the meeting after the meeting, which is in the parking lot or where she had on social media, <laughs> is with the people you agree with. And you get together to complain and grumble about the people you disagree with. And you even demonize them. You know, they are of the devil. Mm -hmm. I mean, people will get to that extreme. Yeah. But in these healthy churches, the meetings after the meetings were very different. Instead of meeting with people you, you agreed with, you met with people you disagreed with. And they would seek one another out, and they would do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, they wanted to confess that they got too passionate and that they had lost control, and they asked for forgiveness. Said, help me understand more why you are choosing this particular position on this issue. And that was a major difference. Well, why did they do that? These churches had significantly higher percentages of people in Bible study. Mm. Uh, the, the healthiest ones were over 50% of their average worship attendance were in weekly Bible study. And so when they had disagreements, uh, they responded differently. They knew how to live out the sanctified life, to, to live as the baptized children of God. It didn't mean that they were perfect, that they were sinless. They still sinned against one another. Mm -hmm. 
But instead of uh, attacking one another and polarizing and splitting apart and acting in worldly ways to undermine each other, they sought one another out to reconcile. Mm -hmm. And so what makes a difference in a healthy church is remembering who you are in Jesus Christ, uh, to be in God's word regularly so you're nourished and equipped to live the sanctified life. As Timothy uh, was instructed by Paul, the purpose of the word is to equip the man of God to do every good work. Um, and then they don't just apply it to people outside. They apply it to themselves. And they demonstrate that by the way they, they live reconciliation, by the way they confess and forgive as they resolve their conflict. That's awesome. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when we really think about what would the root cause be, and as you mentioned with social media, so much time is spent, and it's not just keeping up with old friends from high school and college and family. It's uh, just to be polarized. It seems to be a tool now for more and more polarization, and think about all that time spent if it was actually spent in the Word of God, uh, and then it is lived out, as you said, what a difference that would make. Um, but as you're also speaking that you need to practice uh, confession and forgiveness, that's also going to be one of the results of being uh, in the Word of God. So what then, Ted, does reconciliation actually look like? So I want to talk about it in, in two different parts. And I want you to think of a cross where you have a vertical part of the cross and you've got the horizontal part. And I want to talk about the vertical reconciliation first. And that's what it means to be reconciled to God. And uh, over our years of, of working with people, we have found that, that this description of reconciliation really helps people think of how to apply a biblical um, vision of reconciliation. Well, it begins with God. And the first thing we, uh, I, I want to talk about three parts on each of these two beams of the cross. On, in our vertical relationship, First thing is to remember whose we are, um, that we were purchased and redeemed by Jesus' blood from our slavery to sin. We belong to Christ. And in our baptism, we were adopted into God's family. Now, this is important because when we remember whose we are, then we remember who we're opposed to. I'm not opposed to the enemy. I'm opposed to someone I'm going to spend eternity with in heaven. And uh, uh, one day I was uh, preparing a man for mediation. It was a business dispute gone bad, and it was a, a black man and a white man that had a close business relationship, and now they were at war with one another, the attorneys, all of that. And this one man says, I just can't wait till this is over with, and I never have to deal with that other guy again. And I said, oh, really? I said, you know, you two are related. And the man looks shocked. He says, how can that be? I says, well, you're both Christians, right? You're related by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you will spend eternity together. Well, the man was quiet for a long time. And then he says, I guess I need to be concerned about more than just my rights. I need to be concerned about my relationship to my brother in Christ. And that's all coming with remembering whose we are, that we are not our own and we don't live in this world for ourselves, but for Christ who died and was raised again for us. The next part in being reconciled to God is to repent before God. 
And here we go to the Ten Commandments, and we look beyond the Ten Commandments to our heart, where God looks into our heart. And we especially want to look at the idols of our heart, those things that we cling to that we want so badly that we're willing to sin to get what we want, even if it's a godly desire. Maybe I want something really good for my new church, but if I'm willing to undermine somebody else to get my way, I've crossed the line. And I've made that new thing at that new church my new God. Uh, And so we repent before God. But then very quickly, that takes us to the last part, and that's to receive forgiveness, to, to to hear that good news again, that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds. We have been healed. That's how Peter explains it. And it's that good news that our sins are taken away and our relationship is fully restored to God. Now, we start there because that's the beginning of our relationship to each other. So now we go to the horizontal beam of the cross. And again, we talk about three parts. And the first is as we've confessed to God, now we confess to the other person. Remember the prodigal son, when he returned to his father, says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. That's the two parts of the cross, repenting before God and repenting before the other person. And uh, by the way, the Bible never uses the word apologize as a substitute for the word confess. The world uses it because it has no hope in confession. But as we confess our sins, we have hope in the forgiveness through Christ. So that's the word the Bible uses. So we confess to the other person, and then the next part on that beam is to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Well, you're not going to remember to do that if you haven't remembered the first part. That's why the vertical relationship is so important. And it's Christ's love and forgiveness that empowers that to do which we could never do on our own. Forgive as God has forgiven us. And then the third part is to restore with gentleness. Uh, We have a responsibility that when uh, a brother or sister is ensnared in sin, as Galatians 6.1 talks about, we are to come alongside and restore with gentleness. And those are the three components of of, uh, reconciliation to others. So we have a, 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 a picture of that diagram uh, on our website that's available. Uh, and if you want to put it on your web, we can give people a direct link to that. <laughs> we'll do. They can download a free copy and see how that looks. But that's how we would describe reconciliation in two parts. The first is to be reconciled to God. Next, to be reconciled to one another. Awesome. And, you know, that makes sense, again, uh, for church plant leaders, you can only give what you receive you need to be in the Word of God. You need to be receiving the forgiveness of God, and then you are able to then give that to others. But um, that that makes a lot of sense that we are to be reconciled to God and that we can forgive as God has forgiven us. That's that's great. So, again, talking about a new venture, um, there's always going to be a phase that you're going to go through with any new venture. I don't think you can avoid uh, what we call in the probably the corporate world too, but the forming, storming, and norming of a new organization. And, um, you know, even though this is a a good and godly thing, even with church planning, there will be the, again, getting a a group of people from all different walks of life, some 
Lutheran, some not Lutheran, some not even Christian. They're becoming this core group of people. There will be that forming and then storming and then finally norming that's going to happen even with church plants. So how can church planters and their members grow healthy congregations? You know, what I'm so excited about new church plants is they have the opportunity to be intentional about developing a spiritually mature culture. Mm. Every organization develops its own culture, and churches in particular. Uh, each congregation has its own way of doing things. And over time, that becomes normal. That's the norming part. And uh, sometimes uh, a church culture is, is defined by the way it responds to conflict. In fact, many new church plants are the result of a church split. Mm. And uh, when that occurs and they don't reconcile, they take those broken relationships into the new church and fighting becomes their culture. Mm. And many of the churches we've worked with are, are one side or the other of the split. It's called for mission purposes. It was justified, but it was never reconciled. And those hurt relationships uh, foster a culture of dealing with conflict by power, mm. by splitting, by polarizing, and it continues on. Wow. But when you start a new church, you have an opportunity to be very intentional about creating a special culture. Often we don't think about it intentionally, and a culture is defined by language, by habit, uh, by, by the way we do things. And uh, if a church wants to be intentional about being spiritually healthy, it can, it can do those things. And, and so what are we talking about? What we're talking about is not just focusing on worship, but focusing on keeping people in God's Word. The healthy churches that I interviewed, uh, the senior pastors of, um, were churches where, where people were engaged together in Bible study. Uh, the people uh, were constantly encouraged and shown how to have regular devotions. They had uh, scripture reading plans for the year. Uh, there were all kinds of ways to engage people with God's Word. And a new church has an opportunity to do more than just create a worship service and reach out with some great social activities. It can, it can be formed around the study of God's Word and making that an essential part. Next, uh, that as they come together, uh, being constantly reminded of who they are as people of God that they aren't just as the world sees us. And, and there's so many ways we identify ourselves uh, um, by our job, uh, by our race, by our uh, uh, vocation in the family, husband, you know, wife, uh, father, mother, daughter, son, parent, whatever it is. Um, sometimes by uh, uh, just different organizations we belong to or different hobbies that we have. But when we die and meet our maker, there's only one identity that makes any difference, and that is who I am as a child of God. And the more we, we realize that's uh, the source of our identity on earth, that puts a different perspective on how we view one another, even those we disagree with. Then not only being in the Word remembering whose we are, but then learning to practice confession and forgiveness. And this is so 
counter our human nature <laughs> and it's counter our culture. In fact, very often uh, I come from a business background and uh, very often in the business world, in the political world, in the public arena, you're encouraged not to admit wrongdoing, but to lead by strength. But what did Paul say? He says, in my weakness is Christ glorified. In other words, it's when I admit my wrongs that I'm showing the strength of Christ and faith in the forgiveness of sins. So it's just the opposite of our human nature and of what the world teaches us to, uh, um, to confess and to forgive. But the more we learn to practice that, uh, even in the little things in life, the easier it is to practice that in the greater things. Hmm. Um, and then as we develop leaders in the church, they are to lead by example. One of the things that struck me about these healthy churches, uh, uh, I asked them what percentage of their leaders were in Bible study. In the healthiest ones, it was 90 to 100% of all their elected leaders and staff were in Bible study. And I said, why is that? And they said, you cannot serve any leadership position in our church unless you're in Bible study, period. You cannot serve on staff. You cannot serve uh, as an elder or as a council member or as a committee member unless you're in Bible study. Why not? Well, first of all, each of their leaders need to be fed themselves, but next, they need to lead by example. And just as parents who will drop children off at Sunday school and then go to brunch, give an example to their children of the priority they have being in the Word, same thing with the leaders. If, if the elected leaders of the church aren't going to be in Bible study, what's the communication they're giving to the new members of this new church plan? It's not that important. And so uh, starting a, a new church where the policy is the expectation is, the culture is, all leaders are in the word and, and are demonstrating that. And by the way, all of those leaders are imperfect. <laughs> all of them are people who need a hospital, but they are applying the cure to themselves and, and to others around them, uh, living the, the life of, of the baptized. Awesome. And, you know, you bring up a good point. Most church planters kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, but you also have to understand that these things take planning. If you want to have your whole group going in the same direction, if you want to have expectations of your leadership, it's not just going to happen. Um, but these are things to plan for. We're going to talk a little bit about the messiness of this in application. Um, Ted, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. As I was hearing you discuss these things and leading by example, um, I think it is a potential for some church planters that they'll have somebody that's kind of zealous and a go-getter and really wants to find a place in leadership. Um, and then you find out that this individual may not have had the best intentions, might even be a mental health issue, but they really become toxic to the group. I mean, they're in a leadership role and either they're crossing boundaries and there's something inappropriate or they're just straight up abusive or they're very divisive intentionally. Um, is, is there a time when somebody in that kind of position, you know, it's, you'd let them go? Yes. 
And what's even better is is in selecting the right people to begin with. True. So, so let me give you uh, an example of what it can look like if you have um, people that are not in the Word in key leadership positions. One church we were working with, the um, the chairman of the congregation, the vice chairman of the congregation, and the head elder were at loggerheads with the senior pastor. Mm. And they had uh, very loud arguments in front of the rest of the leaders. Uh, at times, uh, they would stand up, uh, they would storm out of meetings, they would kick chairs, and all of those kinds of things. Well, when we arrived, I was not surprised to learn that those three key leaders, none of them attended Bible study. In fact, the head elder would stand in the narthex, in the entryway of the church, and greet people as they came in and pull them aside and talk to them to complain about the pastor after worship had started. And then he and this other person that he'd held would walk into the service 20 minutes late. Now, when I met with the elder and we talked about the difference between conflict resolution and reconciliation, uh, they were talking about whether or not they should engage our services. It became clear that the only reason he wanted our help is if we helped get rid of his pastor. Mm. He was not interested in reconciliation. In fact, this is what he said. Now, by the way, this head elder was the owner of the largest farm implement dealer in his county, okay? (laughs) So he was a businessman, and he said, look, my employees know who signs their check, and pastor better do what I want, or he's out of here. And if, if that's the kind of leader you want that will use worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom, um, don't expect the pastor to be around forever. Mm-hmm. In another case, uh, uh, a pastor friend called me. He, he was pretty concerned because they had an election of new officers coming up. And two men were being elected for key positions. One was uh, for the chairman of the elders. One was for chairman of the congregation. And uh, he told me that these two men uh, rarely came to worship, let alone Bible study. And uh, I said, uh, so do your bylaws have any requirements on who serves in these key positions, any biblical requirements? He says, no, they just have to be a member. I said, do you have any policies or any you know, uh, practices that require that? He said, no. I said, then the only thing you can do is go to the congregation and uh, make an appeal that they elect people that are spiritually mature. Well, guess what? These two men got elected. Now, the reason they got elected is they had three generations of their family buried in the church cemetery. So their name was well known, and they were both business leaders in in the community. So they were very well known. They were respected as leaders. Uh, The pastor was gone in six months. Mm. Um, because they did not want somebody that was going to always be pointing them back to Scripture. And so when you have people that are very excited about serving, obviously you want to encourage that, you want to nourish that, um, but you want to begin by making sure that they are spiritually grounded. Mm. You mentioned that you might have somebody that is very enthusiastic that might be struggling with a mental illness. There's other things as well that can affect people's ability to function with other people. Uh, Substance abuse Mm -hmm. uh, is one, or other types of addictions are things that we've run into. Um, And uh, uh, of course, mental illness. Uh, But 
but you get to know those things as you work with people in God's Word. Let's talk about another illustration to help understand the importance of this. What if the president of our country sent our troops into Syria? And this is what he said to our troops. We're going to give you the best leadership, the best equipment, the best training the world has to offer you. And to nourish you, we're going to give you one meal a week. Ridiculous, right? <laughs> what army can fight on one meal a week? He says, oh, you don't understand. It'll be a banquet. It'll be a feast. But no military can fight a war and only eat once a week. Hmm. But what do we expect of our people? We expect them to come to worship, which is a feast. It's a banquet where God's word is, where the sacraments are offered, where, where we're singing praises to our God. It's a feast. It's a banquet. But if that's people's only connection to God's word in a week, then they go on a six-day fast. But today, regular worship is not normally considered weekly. It's considered once or twice a month. And if that's the only time people are connected to the Word, then that means they're on a two- or three-week spiritual fast between every worship service that they attend. Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, the battles we wage are spiritual, and we need to arm ourselves with the the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, to to shod our feet with with the, the, the gospel and to wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And if we are not giving people the Word more than just in worship, we're leaving them vulnerable to all the, all the uh, temptations of our world. And so what's going to influence them in their disagreements? And I'm not talking just about church here. I'm talking about their marriages, about their families, about their workplaces, about their neighborhoods, about every place they interact with people. Where are they going to learn to deal with conflict? What they learned growing up, what they learned in college, what they learned in fighting an insurance claim, what they learned on television, what they've learned on the internet, if that's where they spend the bulk of their time, that's going to have far more influence than the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful and effective, but if we don't access it, the Spirit can't use that means to change our lives. <laughs> and so keeping us all in the Word is critical for living the sanctified life, for knowing how to confess, when to forgive, all of these things are focused on, on God's Word. So, especially when we're appointing leaders in, in new churches, we want to identify those that are people of God's Word so that they can raise up and mentor more people of God's Word to work with us. Very good. And, you know, that's one of the things about church planners, too. Not only are they entrepreneurial, they're very likable. They want people to like them. And so that's kind of hard sometimes uh, to make tough calls, to have expectations, to not avoid conflict. But for the sake of the mission and for the sake of the flock, you know, these are the things that um, you're, you're helping us to understand need to be part of your church plan. And the things you describe certainly sound simple enough, but does it really work in the end? Well, in some ways, it's simple, but it's not easy. <laughs> um, 
and reconciliation is messy business. Um, people often forget how bloody our reconciliation is to God. Uh, our reconciliation required Christ's blood shed with much suffering and death. And our God was willing to invest that because he loved us so much in spite of the fact that we were considered his enemies, Romans chapter 5. And uh, so reconciliation, our reconciliation to God was bloody business. And it takes a lot of sacrifice. And it takes a lot of work. And at times uh, it, it, it seems uh, impossible. But then we have to remember that our God makes promises to us. We are never alone. Jesus promises he will never leave us nor forsake us. He doesn't promise we're not going to have conflict. In fact, he promises we're going to have a lot of trouble. <laughs> but he says, I will be with you always, even to the close of the age. Hmm. And if it is he that is sending us out for the ministry of reconciliation, he will be there when we need his guidance. And he works through his word through his sacraments. We have free access to him through prayer uh, by making our request known to him. The, the Holy Spirit gro uh, groans for us when we're inadequate in our prayers. Um, and, and we have his promise. He who died and rose again and ascended to sit next to the Heavenly Father is there to be an advocate for us, for each of us, in all of our daily struggles. And Christ knows what those struggles are like. Hmm. Because, you see, he didn't just reach out to us through a text or a Zoom. He came in the flesh, and he lived on this life, on this planet. And, and he, he touched people physically, and he saw the disease and the destruction, and, and, and he endured the suffering himself so that uh, we have a, a, a priest who understands what it means to live in a world beset by sin. Hmm. And it is he who gives us hope. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, Ted, um, we're grateful to have you with us today, especially that you're here in St. Louis. Can you tell our listeners what brings you to St. Louis today? Um, I am going to be receiving a, a, an honorary doctor of letters from Concordia Seminary. And, uh, I, I was totally shocked by that when I got the phone call. Uh, but I'm receiving that uh, as a result of my writings and, and work for the church at large. And it is just a, a huge honor uh, to, to receive that, that special degree. Well, on behalf of Mission Field USA, we want to certainly uh, give you our congratulations. And uh, for our listeners, just to understand, uh, he knows his stuff. So we're very, very grateful for his time today. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you then is, you know, when it comes to working with ambassadors of reconciliation, I'm assuming you don't want to wait until everything falls apart and conflicts are <laughs> dividing uh, before they reach out to you guys for help. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. In fact, <laughs> my favorite work is proactive work. And, and actually, mo the, the, the majority of our work is proactive. What does that mean? It means that we teach and, and develop resources to teach people how to live lives of reconciliation. So, so we have Bible studies. We, we do uh, seminars for churches. For a new church, what a great way to build a culture by having a, a full-day seminar on what does it mean to live the reconciled life. 
Um, uh, we have uh, devotions, uh, not only in print, uh, but uh, available in recorded form. Uh, we have online training as well. Uh, and then when people need assistance, we can assist them, but we also train church leaders. So, uh, for example, uh, pastors and elders or council members, new leaders of a church, can be trained on how to coach people in conflict, how, how to mediate different disputes. And our encouragement is that every church should have its own reconciliation ministry, not for just the conflicts at the church, but to help people with their marriage problems, mm. with, their, with their family issues, with issues at work, and to show them how to live uh, the life of a Christian in a, in, a, in a secular world, because that's where the mission work really takes place, is when, um, when you act so differently, people stop and say, why would you admit you were wrong? <laughs> How can you forgive that person? Those are the questions that uh, are, are the opportunity to say, well, let me tell you why. Let me tell you what difference Jesus makes to me. Hmm. And we are to be light and salt in the world. And the way we are is when we interact with them. But when we interact in a way that is so dramatically different, people have to say, why would you do that? <laughs> say, well, let me tell you why. <laughs> and and that, that just makes all the difference in the world. Perfect. Any, any last words of encouragement that you have for us today, Ted? I do. Uh, some words uh, from uh, Paul's letter to a new church plant that was in conflict. Uh, his letter to Rome uh, is for all of us today as well, of course, from uh, uh, chapter 15. Paul had just talked to them about some of the issues uh, of conflict in their church. And as he was wrapping it up, he, he gave this blessing. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a, 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 a big hope. Hmm. But then in verse 13, he gives the, the reason that they can have this hope. And this is the hope for all of us, especially in those brand new churches. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen and amen. So thank you so much for your time today, Ted. Really appreciate it. And for all of our listeners, uh, especially you church planners out there, make sure you avail yourself of all the resources that Ambassadors of Reconciliation have for you to have a smooth, forming, norming, storming, and all the rest, but that not only do you have a solid core group, but as Ted said, um, what a great opportunity for outreach we have in a world that is so divided and broken to bring that kind of reconciliation to the communities around us that we serve in our church plants. So again, Ted, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Steve. It's been great being here. All right, and be sure to check in with us again next month with the Mission Field USA podcast series. Thanks for listening to the Mission Field USA podcast for church planting. Visit lcms.org slash church planting for other resources and information to share your ideas and to contact us. The Mission Field USA podcast is a production of the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in partnership with KFUO Radio. The Lord be with you. you.